Good morning, folks. My name is Lou Damiani. If you are visiting with us at Sojourn, we welcome you today and hope you feel well greeted and being a part of our fellowship today. Um, before we go to the scriptures, give a little update on the, on the Hydlofs. So all the entire family is in Liberia to hopefully bring home their adopted daughter named Ellie. And they've been there for a bit. They expected to come home about right now, but there's been a glitch. It's not on the Liberian side, but on the American embassy side. And so Jeff and the kids are coming home now, but Kate will be staying there for a, they don't know how long, but till they can bring Ellie home. We just want to take a time to pray together for them and pray that this process, I mean, the red tape, you know how that can go. So let's just take some time to, to pray for the Hydlofs and for Ellie. Father God, we, we thank you that you are sovereign over every single circumstance. And we're asking for your sovereign comfort and wisdom and expediting to be done on behalf of this adoption, uh, that, that you, things would come together in order. We pray, God, for your safety and for your presence and power over the hide loss and all of their transition back here to the States and for the acclamation of Ellie to their family, to this culture, all of that. We just commit them to you at this time, but really continually. Thank you for this journey they're on. Thank you, God, that it's not without discomfort and not without risk as they follow you in faith. In your great name we pray, amen. The Hydlofs are on a journey, and it reminds us that we all are. Following Jesus has never been easy. It's challenging. It's not comfortable. He leads us down paths that are going to challenge us. Because, my friends, God does not want us to merely exist, to just live our lives getting through another day. No, he wants us to thrive every single day of our life, even in times when we're going through pain and suffering. He wants us to thrive, not just about our circumstances being right, but from the inside out. He wants to experience that kind of life. So it is not surprising that with Jesus' initial recorded sermon, the one you may be sick of hearing from right, from right now all these times, and you probably have memorized by now, right? The very first words out of his mouth were focused on this very thing. The 10 verses that we know as the Beatitudes are like a preamble to this entire sermon because Jesus knows us. He knows us. Every one of us that we all deep down have the same ultimate question we're asking. What does real living look like? And how can I experience it? Well, these verses present the journey to the life we've always wanted. They really do. Even though we may be a little bit familiar with them now. Pastor Matt asked that I um, 
speak on peacemaking or consider doing that this morning, uh, mainly because part of my ministry is working with conflicted leader teams in churches. And so this has become a passion of mine, um, and the whole ministry of peacemaking is definitely one of learning, um, but God is in it. Because he, he wants his brothers and sisters to know what it is to live at peace. But for us to understand the seventh beatitude, I want us to see it in context. Because these beatitudes tend to domino one into another very naturally. So there'll be a bit of review this morning as we work our way down to the seventh beatitude. And my Bible is falling apart here. Okay. So beginning, it starts off, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit literally means spiritually bankrupt. Without Christ, every single one of us are spiritually bankrupt. The person who is poor in spirit is the one who is willing to admit it. It is this dependency of spirit. He knows he cannot save himself. He knows he is destitute. He knows he needs some redemptive work in his life and heart and that Christ provided it. And this is not just coming to God, confessing, Lord, my life is a mess. Could you just straighten out some things and let my life get back to normal? No. It is confessing something like this. Lord God, I'm not just in a mess. I am the mess. The mess, in fact, is inside of me. Would you come in and clean that mess up? Because I know I need you. I know I cannot save myself. I cannot heal my life. I cannot run my life. I've sinned against you. I need your forgiveness. And I thank you for the price you paid for my sin. I know I don't need just a new start. I need a new heart. That is the poor in spirit person. I love Pastor Matt's description of this. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Because before Christ, Ephesians 4.3 is very to the point. We were all dead in trespasses and sin. And dead people cannot clean themselves up. They cannot save themselves. We don't need a revitalization. We need a resurrection. When we come to Christ, it's the spirit that makes us alive in his spirit. We just receive it. We don't cause it to happen. It's his spirit's work. And we're born again. Now we're on the pathway. And the road following him starts. And where does it lead next? Blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. And we may think, wait, what? Mourn? Really? That sounds so depressing. Because the people who mourn are the ones in serious emotional pain, suffering, grieving, and hurting. 
Folks, it's significant that in the Greek, there are nine Greek words that are used to describe and reference grief. And this one is the strongest. This one beatitude could easily comprise an entire sermon series. But this is the Cliff Notes version. A singular reality is frankly wrapped up in this one verse, and it is this. God has to break us to remake us. He has to break each of us of our stubborn will, our self-centered attitudes, and our independent spirit. And to do that takes pain. He does it for our ultimate good so that we would not ruin our lives living self-focused and self-reliant. This process invariably will require pain, heartache, and hardship like a loving father disciplines their children. Believe me, God knows how to discipline us and to train us, to grow us. So here's the freeing truth, my friend. God knows perfectly each trial to allow into your life, the timing of it, the intensity of it, and the duration of it. In order for you to experience true character, in order to have the fruit of his spirit be evident and growing in you, in order for you to experience the life you have always wanted. It does not come apart from the pathway of pain. My favorite poem so well describes this reality, and fittingly, this poem is written by an author whose name is Anonymous. I have not met Anonymous, but that's who this guy is. Listen to his words. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man, and skill a man. When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all of his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world will be amazed, then watch his methods and watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and he hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into this trial shape of clay that only God understands while our own heart is crying and we lift beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks. When it is, when it is good, he undertakes how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, with every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Indeed he does, my friend. And this is the way he works. To be honest, humanly speaking, this verse seems like a total oxymoron because blessing combined with mourning, crying, and weeping just does not go together. In our minds, it doesn't. But in God's mind, it certainly does. 
humanly, humanly, this just does not compute to us. How does this result in great blessing? Well, here's how. God's transformational work, transformational process through praying, you can write it down. I don't have an overhead for you to do this, but you're welcome to write it down. I'll try to go a little slow. When in pain, when in your pain, you go to God about your pain. When in your pain, you go to God about your pain. First and foremost, he then grows you through your pain. It's an ongoing thing. When in your pain, you go to God about your pain, he then grows you through your pain. Choice by choice, tear by tear, day by day, you're being transformed imperceptibly from the inside out. Here's his design. He allows us to be hurt. He's allowed some hurts. He's allowed all the hurts. And his sovereign plan to heal you of those hurts, to then make you a healer in the lives of others. That's his blessing cycle. If you are willing to have Christ transform you through your pain, this is what you will personally discover over time. He will birth his greatest blessings in your life, his greatest spiritual fruit through your life, through the deepest sufferings of your life. At the end of my freshman year in college, back when the earth crusted over, <laughs> though I was a Christian, I was running my own life and I was ruining it. And God, divine discipline, intervened. Hello, brick wall. Finally, I said to the Lord, I give up. I give my life over to you. And I realized that was ruling me. I don't want to rule me. I want you to rule me. So the next year, my sophomore year, at 19, was the most painful year of my life. Yet, in retrospect, it was the very best year of my life. I have learned that the two goes together. Because of the transformational work God does in our lives through all the pain, that pain becomes painfully wonderful. When pain, loss, and suffering come into your life, you essentially have two choices. First, you can go to God with the pain, just like what we've talked about, allowing him to do his deeper work in you through it, and in the end, come out so much better. Or you can go to your own devices. You can internalize that pain and become depressed and oppressed. You can medicate your pain and become addicted. Or you can react in your pain with anger, self-pity, and play the victim and become bitter. Child of God, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what will go on in your life, but your Heavenly Father does, and he has a great purpose for every pain, heartache, and loss. It is to break you to bless you. It is to break you to bless you. Let him do his work. Because what follows next in this passage are some of the blessings he is working in our lives. The first one is humility. In verse 5, 
Blessed are the meek or the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Meaning that they were going to inherit, they will inherit a blessed life in this life, but they will inherit the best life in eternity, the most rewarded life. Notice the domino here. Again, the more we're in the process allowing the God to break us, genuine humility is birthed in us. It is. We, more other-centered is birth, uh, focus is birthed in us. We becoming, it becomes increasingly evident in our spirit. Now, the KJV has this word, meek, and I just shared it when I read it because it's in my brain. But meek does not mean weak. It means exactly the opposite. It actually means strength under control. By the way, are any of you into horses? Got a hand there, a few of you guys? Oh, well, uh, there is one, yes. I might have guessed. Yeah. Picture the unbroken stallion, extremely powerful, yet apart from being broken, extremely dangerous, destructive to all around him, but also destructive to himself. But once, once some soul goes out and ventures out to break him, and eventually places him under bit and bridle. All the power and the potential of that stallion is still present, but it's harnessed for productive use because that stallion is now under the rule of another master. Therefore, all his potential, all that power can be used as God designed him to be used. It's to the fulfillment of that horse as well as to those who are ruling that horse. As we allow God to break us, so we have all of these abilities he's given us, all this potential, the intelligence he's given us, the skills he's given us, the abilities. But our potential will only be realized to the level of our character. And our character will only be grown to the level by which the master of our souls rules our life. Otherwise, if you're extremely intelligent, you're just going to become smarter sinners to your own detriment. By far the most powerful people on the face of this earth are not the presidents. They are not the prime ministers. And they are not any other politician which should be in and of itself good news to you this morning. Nor are they the billionaires, the bankers, or the elite power brokers. The most powerful and eternally influential people are those whose lives is ruled by the Spirit of God. Because here's how their lives will be used. They will experience the blessed life in this life, and they will inherit the greatest rewards possible for all eternity. But their lives on this earth would have the greatest influence beyond what anyone could ever imagine, having their life harnessed and controlled by the Spirit of God and living to the glory of Jesus Christ. They are the most powerful, influential people on this planet. And that person can be you. A humble spirit naturally dominoes into the next beatitude. We begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness, after the things that ultimately fulfills us because our appetites have been changed. We are learning that pursuing a relationship with Christ is the only thing that fully satisfies.
satisfies the soul. The first four Beatitudes, notice, are all inner qualities. And now we go to the next three that are outward evidences. The sequence is significant. Right attitudes lead to right actions. That's why God's work is always at the center of our heart. He wants our heart. Religion just wants the outside of us. Just do all the right things. But a relationship with the living God, he's working on his word to the core of our heart. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This means we just become more empathetic, others aware, kind, considerate, compassionate, treating all others with honor and respect. And there's a promise attached to this. The mercy shall obtain mercy. We will reap what we sow in a good way. The next outgrowth then, it just dominoes into blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Understand, this, this does not say blessed are the perfect in heart or we're all in trouble. No, this just says blessed are those who are growing sincere in their love. Lack of pretense. They don't pretend. They become truth-loving. Romans 12, 9, let your love be without hypocrisy. Let it be genuine. Let it be honest. So in that culture, in the Roman culture, pure at heart came to mean a life without wax. And here's the context. I love this. In that day, people would have expensive vases that they treasured in their family. And on occasion, when an owner would decide to sell one, he may have noticed that there's this tiny little crack going down one side of that vase. Well, I can't sell it right now. It'd be worthless. So what they did is they would hire an artisan to put wax in there inside that crack. And then when the wax would harden, he would be able to blend color and design so that you could not tell that that vase was doctored. It looks so authentic. And they go, magnifico, perfecto. Undetectable. Until you put the vase out in the noonday sun. <laughs> and then the heat of the sun would melt the wax. Oops. And so that's what the buyers learned to do. Is this genuine? Is this without wax? Thus the term came to mean that. No pretense. It's authentic. Without cover-up. What an ideal descriptor of our lives, our personal lives. See, God's trans transformational work in your life and mine looks something like this. The word of God is used by the spirit of God. The spirit of God is the spirit of truth. He's also the spirit of light. He's a penetrator. Hebrews 4.12 says, God's word is alive. These are not dead words. It's alive. It's powerful. 
sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's able to pierce between the soul and the spirit, between the joints and the marrow, and is able, like none other, no other book, it's able to discern the thoughts and the intents of your heart. And the thoughts and the intents of our heart is where we live. It's able to help us see us. That's the word of God. That's the work of the Spirit. It's light to show you, and it's heat to convict you and me in the core of our being. It doesn't do this automatically, though. It takes us being in the word to think on it, to pray through it, to meditate a little each day, or we will grow self-deceived. The word is meant to transform us this way. So that we grow in truth, we become people of truth. Where the thoughts and intents of our heart becoming more true to the scriptures. Then what naturally comes out of this is your Christian life begins to flourish because you hate pretense. You see the soul-crushing bondage it creates in you and in your marriage and in your family and in your churches. What naturally dominoes into the next beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the Son of God. Exactly what is a peacemaker? It's simply this. People desiring to live in the truth, loving others to help them live in the truth. Two things always go together in the Bible, truth and peace. <laughs> they walk hand in hand. Peace without truth is a false peace. Peace with truth is a transformational peace. Peace without truth is only a circumstantial peace. Peace with truth is an internal peace, no matter your circumstance. And when you live in that, you want others to live in that, not pretense. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love that we all spiritually grow up in all aspects of Christ. This is the most eliminated verse in the history of the churches I've been in. Speaking the truth in love. Most churches are entrenched with pretense. If we don't learn how to speak truth and love in our churches, notice we don't grow up in Christ. The peacemaker, the peacemaker loves truth and wants us to grow up to experience Christ no matter what it costs. And it does cost. All right. I'm indebted to Ken Sandy, uh, Patty's boss, for this. There are three ways we typically handle conflict. As peace breakers, as peace fakers, or as peacemakers. Let's see which one you might fit into. The peacebreaker is the one who tends to be aggressive in conflict. 
Arguments are like competition, like debates. You gotta win, it's a conquest. They need to win, seemingly at any cost, even at the cost of relationship. To what extent do you try to win arguments, especially those arguments where you felt you're being somehow attacked? Through verbal bulldozing, defensiveness, name-calling, unfavorable comparisons, argumentativeness, where you are skilled, verbally skilled, to wear people down to where they just relent and I guarantee you they'll resent. What do you win? How's that working for you? Here's what we win. Increased pride. Because we're feeding the pride monster every time we win. We just become more proud the next time and more assured of ourselves the next time, which also closely connected deeper self-deception. We start feeling that we are so wise and everybody else seems to be the problem. They just need to understand the wisdom I have to give them and they'll come around. It's like the guy who after being divorced for the seventh time told his friend, you know what, after being married and divorced seven times, I've come to this sad conclusion. There must be something wrong with women. For sure, the things that we will win is stress, anger, impatience, and definitely we will win increased relationship distance and discord. And what do we lose? Well, my friend, what we lose is everything we long for. We lose intimacy and closeness in relationships, genuine admiration and respect of others. We win loneliness. We win increased anger. We win deep regret over time. And we win a guilty conscience because we know we lose. I'm sorry, a, guilt, a clear conscience because we know we've treated people, not treated people as Jesus has treated them. The only way to win an argument, my friend, is to the extent that we allow God's spirit to win his way in us during them, I have, or you have, this little thing, this rules of engagement that I have, uh, in this part of your bulletin, I don't know if you got it, but this is a wonderful little tool. Uh, the left side winning behavior is what it looks like in an argument. If you, the more you demonstrate the I don't know how you're looking at this. If you're looking at it, it would be your left side, right? And then the losing behavior is on the right side. One is humility, the other one is pride. What I suggest you do is you rate yourself. And if you are married, then give it to your spouse and have them rate you. <laughs> and that will make for some nice discussions. <laughs> now, here, here's, here's the point, right? You may not like how you came out at all. Or you may not like the way they sh she or he graded you. It's not where you are, it's where you're headed. It's just to give you a, where you are in your own growth in these areas. All right, 
Another way to look at this, the winning behavior is you win. You win. You win the life you always wanted. You win the relationships you've always wanted. So I wish I had time to go through that. We do not. The second area is peace fakers. These are to the other extreme and are far more common, but equally as lethal. These folks are retreaters instead of reactors. They avoid conflict. They fake peace by pretending everything's okay when it isn't. It's fake because it's phony. It's a false peace based on falsehood instead of based on truth. Peace fakers are peacekeepers. And God, Jesus did not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. It's the peacemakers. Peacekeeping is compromising truth in order to keep peace. And when we compromise truth to keep peace, we only end up making matters far worse. It essentially allows the leaven of sin to grow in a life, in a marriage, in a home, and in a church. It is the strategy of Satan, the father of lies, who hates the truth. He doesn't want the truth to be spoken because he knows it's transformational. So the models of the peace faker are many. Don't rock the boat. Let sleeping dogs lie. Don't bring it up. It will just upset fill in the blank. And my favorite, let's just all try to go along to get along. That's fine, that's good, as long as you're not compromising truth in the process of doing that. Whereas the peace breaker re reacts out of selfish pride, the peace faker reacts out of self-protective fear. You know when you're growing in Christ is when 1 John 4.19 becomes more evident in your life is that per you're finding perfect love for people overcomes your fear of speaking truth to them. It overcomes your fear of re being rejected by them. And this is the work of the Spirit. We need this work of the Spirit in our churches. Our churches have been notorious for being places of placation, pacifying, patronizing, peacekeeping, peace faking. And it's killed them. Because the, we have sacrificed truth in order to all go along to just get along. Without truth, there can be no true closeness because we have to embrace the awkward to experience the intimate. Otherwise, our relationships come a little bit more than porcupine dances. We don't want to get too close lest we get pricked. The peacemaker is the truth with love person. They are not driven by pride, not driven by fear, but their love for others is overcoming those, those emotions that are real. She or he is the one who is learning to respond with humility in the midst of conflict, who is learning how to listen intently, question deeply, 
not in a way that's accusatory or attacking, but questioning out of curiosity, listening intently, questioning deeply, and speaking courageously as well as cautiously. He is the one learning how to speak truth with grace, to say the hard things without being harsh, to say tough things in a tender way, with gentleness correcting. In truth, conflict, he begins to view conflict as a stepping stone to intimacy, not a stumbling block to it. There are two re other resources I would suggest that you get. We, we used to have one of these here. I, I think we may still, but Resolving Everyday Conflict by uh, Ken Sandy. It's kind of like Peacemakers for Dummies. It just kind of gives you the basics of it. It's a great read. And the other one is Crucial Conversations by, I think the guy's name is Patterson. It is an outstanding book on how to have a hard conversation in a constructive way. Now hang on a little longer with me. The more we live allowing Jesus to do his deeper work in us, to do his greater work through us, yes, joy will overflow our soul. There we will experience the abundant life he promised. And something else guaranteed will happen. The more you become like Jesus, he told you this himself, the more the world will treat you the way they treated him. And verses 12, 10 through 12 say, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of things against you falsely. Rejoice instead and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, notice the sequence. First four beatitudes, inequalities. Next three beatitudes, outward behavior. The last beatitude is an evil response. Notice what bookends the beatitudes. It starts with great spiritual poverty. And it ends with great spiritual eternal reward. This is the journey. And this is where it ends. Leading to great rejoicing in our lives. Right here, my friends, is the flourishing life. One step at a time, one choice at a time. Do you know why the peacemakers are referred to as the sons of God? Because they're learning to live like Jesus. <laughs> when God the Father sent his Son and Christ willingly came to lay down his life, he chose to leave the glories of heaven to do it. Think about it. The offended, God himself stepped toward the offenders. And Christ, willing to become God, becoming man, the God-man among us, to die the death he did, the horrible death, the shame he suffered, the torture, the bloody shed, all of that to make peace, true peace. 
the ultimate peace. Jesus Christ was and is and ever will be the, the ultimate peacemaker, the Prince of Peace. As we take communion this morning, we do so not just to commemorate and celebrate his sacrifice, but that we come with that heart as saying, Lord God, make me like you. May I be as your son, may I reflect this very thing in my own life. As we take communion today too, let me remind you, you may not know Christ yet. This is for believers. I, we don't invite you to take communion not yet. We invite you to receive the Son. Receive Christ to make that choice. Come poor in spirit to lay down your life and say, Lord, I admit my life is a mess. The mess is in me. We're gonna have a, we'll have prayers on the screen for you to pray toward that end if the service will come. <coughs> Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for leaving all that you left in heaven and sacrificing your life in a way where you did become and have become and are and ever will be the ultimate peacemaker. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would follow you in this. Follow you to believe you. Live in truth. Live by your truth. And learn to be people of truth and making peace one with another. Thank you that you have given your life that we can have life like this. We love you and we celebrate who you are in your wonderful name. Amen.